play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Jessica Seinfeld. Jessica has written five cookbooks. You probably remember her first book, Deceptively Delicious, where she famously sneaked vegetable purees into dishes for picky kids. And her new book is called Vegan at Times. At times, because she doesn't always eat vegan. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had chicken soup. Yeah, for breakfast. I love that leftovers are so good for breakfast. So good. Over the last couple years, Jessica naturally started eating a mostly plant-based diet, but she doesn't put any labels or rules on how she eats, and she certainly is not trying to convert anyone. That's why people are repelled by some vegans is because that's the only way. And if you don't do it, there's something wrong with you. And I just find that abhorrent. Jessica says her vegan mac and cheese is the gateway recipe for plant-based skeptics. Which got me thinking, what allows cheese to melt? And how do you get vegan cheese to do it? I spoke to the CEO of a Bay Area startup called New Culture, a group of cheese-loving scientists who have worked for three years to create a vegan mozzarella cheese that melts and pulls just like the real thing. And Jessica's last meal takes us to a place I never imagined we'd go on this show, organized crime. I chat with Anna Van Valen, host of the podcast Every Day is a Food Day, about how Italian-American restaurants became the clubhouse of choice for the mafia. But first, my conversation with Jessica Seinfeld. When Jessica started eating less meat and dairy, she said she felt better. But she isn't an all-or-nothing kind of person. She describes her new book, Vegan at Times, as a softer, gentler approach to plant-based eating. It is interesting that you are expected to be 100% vegan. It's almost more of an identity than just a way of eating. It's an ideology. And the ideology comes from a wonderful place, uh, the protection of animals. And if you follow me on Instagram, you know that my cats are... And my dogs, I love my dogs too, but I do not love my dogs as much as I love my cats. (laughs) One of the reasons why I wanted to eat less meat is because I want to be thoughtful about our planet and animals. And so, you know, people are connected to food emotionally. It all has to do with your upbringing, I think. And when you start shaming people about how they should eat, that is certainly not going to win you any favors and get people to join in whatever movement you're in. So obviously, you're not 100% vegan, as you're saying, because you had chicken soup for breakfast. So how do you decide when you're going to eat vegan and when you're not? I feel free to have a bowl of chicken soup. It didn't even cross my mind that that was a thing. I don't really keep track. And I I feel like I'm just on a great path with it. I feel so much better. Anyone who's like kind of into that gentler approach, please join me. And that's kind of what you talk about in your chapter, how not to be an annoying vegan. (laughs) I love that you just put it out there. This is basically the topic of that chapter, right? Keep your stuff to yourself. Yeah. I don't even think you want me to be talking about this. You're not going to be down on Fifth Avenue with PETA throwing red paint on people's fur coats (laughs) is what you're saying. No, I am (laughs) definitely not. 
Jessica's married to Jerry Seinfeld, and they have three kids between the ages of 16 and 21. How did you get your family on board to eat this way? I just, again, didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. I just started doing it myself, and it was the middle of the pandemic. My husband just saw me with these like vegetable-forward meals, and I made him a steak one night, and he felt so sick afterwards, and he just went and laid down on the sofa, and I just was like in the kitchen cleaning up and felt really great, and I was like, Do I, does anyone want to play Scrabble? And he was just like... I think I need to do what you're doing. I feel horrible. Mm. So he just started to ask for more of the meals that I made for myself. And it just kind of happened. And now we're doing it like three to four nights a week um, as a family. He's really into it. He's also now getting ready for a film. So he's almost way more into it than I am. Let's talk about how you ate growing up, because it sounds like you had a pretty healthy upbringing. Yeah, I've become my mother. (laughs) Um, So my parents are like 60s cats. They are counterculture to the core, super left. I have been eating tofu and brown rice, and we had cereals in bags, never in boxes in a regular grocery store. I had to volunteer like our hours in the co-op when I was growing up and like just always so embarrassing, the worst lunches, never invited people over for dinner because it was so totally embarrassing. And I would go to people's houses and I would be like, oh my God. What's it like? And then I had like odd jobs after school and I would buy sugar cereals for my birthday with my own money. (laughs) Because of that, I just never developed that desire to eat food with chemicals in it. I have a hard time with processed foods because I taste metal. With all of them? With basically all of them. I taste and smell metal. It's the weirdest thing. I can't even explain it. You'll think I'm so weird. But you said so it anyway, like in the, I see dead people. Kind of yeah, like I, I taste metal. metal. Like my so kids weird. and my husband are always like, oh my God, <laughs> shut up. So like if Not you around. have a bag of chips or M&Ms, all of those things. all I forget M&Ms. Metal. Especially because M&M's and I can tell you like when companies change their formulations, like a few years ago, M&M's changed their formulation, their plain ones, especially. So I can't eat plain M&M's anymore. So you have like a very refined palate. You can taste everything. I mean, refined is like, to me, feels like fancy. Fancy, I'm not fancy. I just, it's like so specific and so debilitating. My sense of smell is almost more severe than my sense of taste. There are certain people I can't be around because they have a certain smell. I feel like, like that too. Really? Yes, it's I have a worst. really strong. I know. I broke up with someone because I didn't like how he smelled, oh. and it wasn't bo. It was just his natural scent. Doesn't even. Yeah, you yeah. can't even. Some of the people you can't fix. No. <laughs> I've had you to can ask try my and spray them down. <laughs> You're like, have you ever tried Axe? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What are a couple of your least favorite smells? You don't have to name any names. No people. Um, This is going to sound really weird. I'm sorry. But people's oxygen walking (laughs) into a gym. Like their breath or just their... Just like walking into a gym that is not ventilated is literally hell Hmm. for me. I can smell everyone's breath. I can smell what people had for dinner last night. It's... I can't... I know it's like not... Normal. No, but I it's love just, this. The weirder, the better. Keep going. Like the smell of people's breath. Period. 
anyone's breath in my face. So that's why I love masks. I've been so happy. Yes. No, it's so funny. Like everyone has different, you know, it's just yeah. everyone's so different. People yes. are so weird and crazy. We have to start something together. Just like the smelling sisters. Just like, we can You know who show. else is crazy? Who? Like us is um, Jake Tapper. He's another sniffy guy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We'll call it. Do you smell that? What, what? No, it's what is that smell? What is that smell? Yeah. No, <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. People are going to hate me. But no. I'm sorry. I, this is not something I wish I was born with. It's driven me crazy my whole life. Well, you should be so lucky, like my grandma would say, because I interviewed Ben and Jerry, and I don't know if you know this, but Ben doesn't have a sense of smell and can hardly taste, and that's why their ice cream is so chunky and full of, you know, oh, cookie wow. dough, because he needed the texture to be able to enjoy it. Oh, wow. Interesting. So I think I'd rather be us than yeah. nothing. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can't help it. We're, we're, we're stuck. We're Here stuck it is. with this nose. <laughs> When we come back, Jessica shares her last meal, which is also one of my favorite comfort meals. And we risk our lives to talk about food and the mafia. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. What would you choose for your last meal? It's just been the same since I was little. Spaghetti and meatballs oh. and garlic bread, Caesar salad and tiramisu. That is so good. Who makes the best version for you? I grew up in Long Island and I had these friends growing up whose parents were involved with organized crime. I kind of thought and, you were going to say that. <laughs> you know, I didn't know until later, but... Um, they 
would take us to these incredible restaurants Hmm. that were like almost like speakeasies. Like there, there was no name on the outside. They were these kitchens and they were like in these really weird places. And I know, like I put it all together later because my mother would be like, where were you? You went on a boat. And so when I was watching the Sopranos, I was like, I'm having a weird vibe here. This is all like very familiar. It felt so clandestine. It felt so like, where am I? Like, this is so exotic. Those were the meals that we used to have when I was little. And I was always like without my parents. And I'm like, where are we? And so it really stuck with me. And then I went to University of Vermont. And there's this place in Burlington, Vermont, home of Ben and Jerry's. We would go to this place called Bove's. And they would have like $2.50 big bowls of pasta, like Mm. students could afford. And it was just like, that meal is so connected to memories for me that it's kind of less about which version of it. Yeah. So growing up in your healthy household, was that something that your parents ever made? Yeah. Yeah. My parents would make that, but more um, as a treat, but not the meatballs. No. Because I was worried it was going to be like you know, lentil balls and whole yeah, pasta. for sure. Falafel balls yes. from the box. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That is such comfort food. When do you make that now? Like, what's the occasion? Oh, we just had it for one of my best friend's birthday dinners two nights ago. Spaghetti and meatballs. Yes. Who doesn't want to eat that? Oh, it's so yeah. good. How do you make your garlic bread? I toast the bread first, and then I take a thing of garlic, smash it, and then rub it first and then like smear butter all over it. For her last meal, Jessica Seinfeld wants spaghetti and meatballs, garlic bread, Caesar salad, and tiramisu. Going back to your mafia childhood really quick, was it like the cliche red and white checkered tablecloth and the Chianti bottles with the wax? Okay. Yes. Yes. All of that. And like, I think it was in... I'm probably going to get killed. I'm either going to get killed or canceled from this podcast, but it's all going to hell anyway. (laughs) Um, It was like in this little place, I think it was an because we were on my friend's boat. And I remember we would always park and we would like go up this little side street and go in this like side door. And it was like this little restaurant and everyone looked like someone in that world. Huh. And I was like a Jewish girl from like yeah. the North Shore of Long Island. Like <laughs> my mom's a social worker. You know, like what? Yeah. You know, like, God, and I so it. yeah, I, I think it was like one of the most exotic experiences I ever had in my life. And and um at that age. And and so it really <laughs> stayed with me and that it was real, real, real. That was the first time I really realized that I was Jewish was the Italians who would be like, oh, we have a Jew around. <laughs> it was so You're like, <laughs> hi. <laughs> I was like, oh. I was so attracted to these people. I just love them. Loud, boisterous, <laughs> red yeah. sauce stained people. <laughs> they made my family, like my Jewish family, feel really normal, I think. Mm. And so I was like, just so into it. <laughs> you hear those bleeps? Yeah, we're trying to make sure Jessica doesn't actually have to experience her last meal after this podcast comes out. We got to keep those locations on the DL, but we can still talk about the history of mobsters in Italian restaurants, which starts with the origin of Italian restaurants in America. 
Italian restaurants in America are very much linked to Italian immigration in America. That's Anna Van Valen, co-host of the podcast Every Day is a Food Day. She says Italian immigration picked up in about 1880 and really spiked in 1907. And the immigrants settled mostly in port cities like San Francisco or New Orleans. But since 97% of immigrants came through New York City, the biggest and most thriving Italian community was there, which we now know as Little Italy. And one really interesting thing is that 80% of these immigrants were men coming in on their own like without any family. So these men needed a place to stay. And since they didn't have, you know, their wives, moms, sisters, grandmas with them, they needed to be fed. So the original Italian restaurants were mostly dining rooms and boarding houses that fed these solo men. And so Italian restaurants, in other words, mostly fed other Italian immigrants. As for spaghetti and meatballs, that is an Italian-American invention. As a rule, Italians do not mix meatballs with pasta. So back in their old country, they didn't have a lot of access to things like meat, which was something reserved for higher classes in Italian villages. The poorer classes mostly lived on grains, fish, soups, and things like that. So when they got to America, the fact that meat was plentiful and affordable was super exciting. And so they added a ton of meat to their diet. And... The meat kind of became a symbol of hope for life in this new world. So things like a giant meatball wasn't something from the old country. It was the total opposite. It was a reminder of what they could not get in the old country. And then the promise of the abundance of their new home in America. Okay, okay. Spaghetti and meatballs, blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the juicy stuff. The mafia and Italian restaurants. There was a little thing that happened in 1920, which kind of affected our entire society, specifically the food and service industry, and invented organized crime. And that was the passage of the Volstead Act, or the 18th Amendment, also known as Prohibition. So since it's been a minute, since AP history, the Volstead Act prohibited the manufacture, sale, and distribution of intoxicating liquors. But shockingly, this didn't stop people from drinking. So though the legal supply dried up, the demand did not, which created this huge vacuum, which got filled with an unbelievably profitable black market through you know, bootlegging, rum running, and smuggling. So gangs emerged, many of them run by Italian immigrants or their descendants, who kind of battled for control of this alcohol black market. And these organized criminals are what we refer to as the mob. And they were making unbelievable money. Okay, Al Capone alone was said to be bringing in $60 million a year in 1920s dollars. It's all dirty money, so they can't really use it, right? They needed to also engage in legitimate businesses to sort of throw off the authorities, look legit, and clean up all that money. So what is a cash-heavy, totally normal business that probably won't get a second look? Restaurants. Starting in the 1920s, these mobsters got into the restaurant business. A lot of them in Chicago, Buffalo, New York, um, in order to launder the money from illegal alcohol sales, which then later on became drugs, guns, human trafficking. And because so many of the mobsters were Italian or of Italian descent, Italian restaurants were an obvious choice for that. Another reason why restaurants were a favorite of the mob is that they are a great place to do business out of. You have just have to look at what happens in the restaurant scenes in Goodfellas and Godfather and kind of get that vibe. 
And if you own a restaurant, you can control who comes in or out, which makes it a safer place to plan your unlawful activities. Plus, if you want to sit around and have a great meal, drink a ton of wine, maybe have some prostitutes in, it's a lot more comfortable to do that than in other great places to, you know, launder money like a car wash or a laundromat. You may remember Jessica saying that the food she ate at those restaurants was incredible. I read all of these stories of people saying that they'd been to mob-affiliated restaurants. And they were funny because they all said, you know, oh, I walked in and there were only these wise guys sitting there. Or I walked in and there were only like five people and they all stared at me. But every single one of these stories ended with them saying something like, but it was the best calamari I've ever had in my entire life. And I was thinking about that, that like even though they're fronts and their purpose isn't exactly, you know, to function as great restaurants, they still do. And I was just thinking about that, like why were they still so invested in making great food? One of the things I thought was, from a practical sense, it's probably easier to launder money in a successful business, right? If no one's going in and out of your restaurant, but your bank account is overflowing, that might raise some red flags. So if your restaurant is packed, it's a lot easier to pad those numbers. And the other thing is, your customers all day long are guys that like break legs for a living. You want to give them good food. You want to keep them happy. One of the most famous mob bosses was Al Capone, who fits Anna's description to a T. He was the son of Italian immigrants, and he gained notoriety during Prohibition. But his main hangout was not an Italian restaurant. It was the Chicago Speakeasy and Jazz Club called The Green Mill, owned by one of his associates. They had, uh, you know, a special table that no one else was allowed to sit in. And then also they built tunnels underneath the lounge for like smuggling the booze in and out. The tunnels were also a way for Al Capone to make a quick escape. And the Green Mill is still open. I went a handful of years ago when I was visiting a friend in Chicago, and it's the perfect dark bar with big booths and, you know, the little red candle holder in the middle of the table, and they have entertainment every night of the week. And the night that I was there, it happened to be slam poetry, which I just try to think about Al Capone and what he would think about slam poetry. It's just not very Al Capone-y. Greenmill didn't serve Italian food, but that is what Capone loved to eat. And according to many websites on the internet, Al Capone's favorite dish was spaghetti with walnut sauce. It had an oil and breadcrumb base with toasted nuts and like cheese sprinkled on top. There was one thing that I kept reading everywhere, which was that Al Capone's sister sold his spaghetti sauce recipe after he died to Ragu, and that is the recipe that ragu is based on. Is this true? Interesting. I've never heard that one. Oh. Um, so it's <laughs> as true, As far right? as I'm aware of, <laughs> that is not true. Sorry to, to burst your bubble. That's Megan Frank, head of marketing and R&D for ragu, the pasta sauce brand of my childhood. Queen of ragu. That's what I'm going to call Perfect. you. Yes. Awesome. Love it. Okay. The truth is that ragu started in the kitchen of an Italian mother in Naples, Italy. The real story is in 1914, a woman named Assunta Cantasano left Naples, Italy for America. She had little more than her family's beloved sauce recipe in hand. She immigrated to America, landed in uh, Rochester, New York, met her husband there. And in 1937, in the midst of the Great Depression, they started selling their beloved sauce off their front porch to make ends meet and put food in the mouth of their six children. And this was the humble beginnings of ragu sauce. So at that time, who was buying this sauce? Because today, spaghetti and meatballs, pasta sauce is just as American as apple pie. But I think we forget at that time, Italians were 
foreigners and immigrants and there was some discrimination even against, you know, garlic and, you know, saying people stunk like garlic, which we love now. Yeah, no, great question. So it's interesting. So the availability of this delicious jarred sauce uh, really did help drive the adoption of Italian cooking in the U.S. more broadly. So it was the first time that consumers could quickly and easily replicate an Italian-inspired meal at home. So really, you know, the the uh, adoption of Italian style cooking uh, was really instigated by the the story I just told you and the availability of ragu sauce. Ragu was the first commercial spaghetti sauce in the United States. It's funny because growing up eating ragu, it wasn't until I was an adult that I understood that ragu is not just a brand. It represents like a kind of sauce, you know, usually a meat sauce, which is interesting because, you know, the ragu I think of is just a tomato sauce. Do you know where they got the name from? Yeah. So the sauce and not everyone knows this, but the name literally came from this Italian word that meant sauce. So that must be kind of funny to people in Italy who see all of these jars that just say sauce on them. It's kind of like in The Simpsons, they just drink a can of beer that says beer on it. (laughs) Completely. Huh. Okay, okay, I know. As soon as I said that, I realized, of course, that the beer cans on The Simpsons actually say duff. But you guys know what I mean. And Megan pretended to understand what I was talking about. So you should, too. When we come back, we'll talk about why most vegan cheeses aren't very good and how one vegan cheese company has found the scientific secret to making plant-based cheese taste and feel just like the real thing. The thing that I love about your book is that you don't use fake meat and you don't use a lot of fake stuff. A lot of people end up eating a lot of processed food instead, and you use a lot of whole foods. It's funny that you noticed that. Thank you. Um, Sarah, my co-author, and I, uh, we tried to do this book without any processed foods at all, including like the cheeses and the butters. And then we just got to a point where we just couldn't really succeed at my original concept, which is like all the foods you really love, but made vegan. Mm -hmm. And so we got halfway through the book and then we were like, we need butter. I also really believe in supporting that infrastructure. People are already eating butter, dairy butter. I don't have a problem with supporting companies that are creating fake butter or whatever it is. I feel like it's all going to hell, Rachel. (laughs) So like, what are we doing here? You talk about your mac and cheese and you say that it is just as good as a traditional mac and cheese. So what's in it and how do you make it? Well, this was the gateway for me, this one, when I made it during the pandemic and my kids had like seconds and thirds and didn't know it was vegan. And then I served it again just last Thanksgiving for like three different families who came over for dinner and all the kids and the grownups ate it and everyone asked for like uh, seconds and thirds. And that was when I was like, chew the fake cheese. Like, (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) Like Everyone just became much more open to vegan food, plant-based meals because of this cheese. It's just like regular mac and cheese. In the recipe, we ask for, you know, plant alternative milk. Mm -hmm. 
I think that cashew milk works the best because it has like the least flavor later um, after you cook it. And it's just like same old, same old mac and cheese, just what your mom used to make. had vegan mac and cheese at a friend's house and I have gone to a vegan pizzeria and had pizza with vegan mozzarella and it was not like mama used to make mostly because the closest my mom got to making those things was ripping open a box of craft and ordering pizza from the place downtown but also the versions I had were not very good I will say that was several years ago and I'm sure they have improved since then but I was scarred enough that I have never bought these products But there is one brand of vegan cheese not yet on the market that I can't wait to try. You know, what we do is we really understand what makes cheese cheesy. That's Matt Gibson, CEO and co-founder of New Culture. I think it's safe to say that if you ask many uh, traditional dairy cheese consumers what they think of plant-based cheese, if they have tried it, they won't be huge fans of it. You know, it's very limited in what it can do. And the reason why plant-based cheese is so limited in what it can do is because it doesn't contain the key ingredients that makes dairy cheese uh, so amazing, that makes dairy cheese have those attributes that we love. And that key ingredient is casein protein. Casein protein is found in most mammals' milk, and it is the secret ingredient to getting cheese to melt. It's what gives you that satisfying cheese pull on a pizza. It's what makes camembert and brie gooey and delicious. Casein protein is crucial to dairy cheese, when you turn milk into cheese, there's the casein protein that coagulates, that forms that curd. So it's such a crucial ingredient to conventional cheese, yet it is an animal protein. So we're finding a way to make animal-free casein protein. And by making animal-free casein protein, we can make a cheese that is indistinguishable from conventional cheese, whilst being much more sustainable, much more ethical, So it sounds like the casein is responsible for the texture of cheese. Yes. The texture, the functionality, a lot of the tastes, you know, it's really responsible for pretty much all the cheese attributes that you think of when you think of cheese. Are there any other flavorings that you add to your cheese? You know, a lot of people use like nutritional yeast with home cooking to try to get a cheesy flavor. Do you Mm -hmm. have to add in other things besides this to give it a cheesy flavor? No. A lot of the tastes of, say, more mature cheeses, comes through aging that cheese. And what you're fundamentally doing when you're aging that cheese is you're introducing bacteria, which is breaking down the casein protein and breaking it down to smaller chunks of protein called peptides. And a lot of the taste of cheese, especially the, the sharp cheeses or, or you know the more mature cheeses, comes from those peptides. So again, we actually rely a lot on, on casein for those taste profiles. New Culture uses synthetically made DNA to create a casein that doesn't come from animals. You know, you can order the DNA for casein protein literally on the web. Um, really? Yeah. When you get like a bag of DNA in the mail, can you see it? What does it look like? Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty costly process to order DNA and, and, and to make it. And so you literally get a very, very small little vial and, you know, you can't see it. You, all you see is like, a little bit of water in there. You know, the DNA is in there, but it's in a, it's in a solution. So it's, it's incredibly small amounts. And then we can let nature amplify it and we can end up with a lot of it. What kind of cheeses are you making? 
we're first focusing on mozzarella, you know, low moisture mozzarella that you would put on pizza because it is the highest consumed cheese in the United States. You know, it recently overtook cheddar. We also see mozzarella as having the poorest plant-based alternatives. You know, when, when you think about plant-based mozzarella, it's really just a starch and coconut oil emulsion. It doesn't melt, it doesn't stretch. And, you know, I'm not from the United States, but one thing I realized very quickly when I came to the United States is that people here love pizza. To Matt's knowledge, New Culture is the only company using caseins to make vegan cheese. He says most plant-based cheeses on the market are made with potato starch and plant-based oils. Whenever I hear somebody talking about why they could never go vegan, I always hear the same thing. I could never give up cheese. And I agree with that. Matt knows that people want to eat less animal products, but they're not going to do it unless there's an excellent alternative. Cheese is extremely unsustainable. Generally considered the worst food product after beef and lamb. When we think about greenhouse gas emissions, when we think about uh, water use, when we think about land use. So we really need to figure out a better way to make a more sustainable cheese. After testing hundreds of iterations, Matt says they've made a mozzarella that they're really proud of. Later this year, they're going to let chefs start experimenting with it. And in 2023, they plan to start selling it to restaurants, just like Impossible Burger got its start. And then once they can scale the product and get the price down, it will be available in stores. But for now, they continue to test by making hundreds of pizzas at their headquarters. It melts. Um, we can actually dull those knobs and we can get it to melt quicker if we want. You could argue that ours melts better. When you bite into a pizza, you want to have that pull. You want to have that stretch. And our mozzarella is stretching on par with conventional dairy mozzarella. It can withstand wood-fired, incredibly high temperature ovens, and it can perform just as well as in a conventional home oven. So, And, you know, I wish we could take all the credit for it, but a lot of it is the legwork done by Casey. And that was Jessica Seinfeld's last meal. Well, thank you so much. This was really fun. It was really nice thank to you meet for you. Me. Yeah, I hope I don't get killed or canceled from it. But if not, you know what? It was fun. Yeah, there'd be some kind of bada bing, bada boom, like some fun yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. some, some guy's going to come and think for me. Oh my God. Yeah, they're going to wrap you in a bunch of meatball and just like throw you off the Drop dock. me in the Long Island Sound. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, anyway, well, have a great nice day. Nice to meet you, Rachel. Nice to meet you, Thank too. You. Take okay. care. Bye. Pick up a copy of Jessica Seinfeld's new book, Vegan at Times, preferably at your local independent bookseller. Thanks to Anna Van Valen, co-host of the podcast, Every Day is a Food Day. If you like to learn the history and salacious stories behind common foods, that's your show. Thanks to Megan Frank, head of marketing and R&D for Ragu. And thanks to Matt Gibson, CEO and co-founder of New Culture. If you want to be alerted to when their vegan cheese hits the market, you can find a link to their website in the show notes. Your Last Meal is produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. I read a quote that you said, we have these boomer husbands who like traditional foods. Um, how did you get your family on board? Is that, I don't know, I read it online. That is most definitely not me. That's I don't so even, funny. Boomer, I've never even said that word before. They must have made it up then because it was an article about you. That's so funny. I'm going to aquafaba. You're my aquafaba queen. That's what you are. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be known for that. No. I feel like 
the the word the terminology in this world needs to be improved like nutritional yeast somebody yes. has to fix that <laughs> somebody's got to fix aquafaba but sarah my co-author and i yesterday were talking about it like maybe it was an italian person who came up with aquafaba well it's, so it's better okay. than bean juice oh uh, yeah stop sorry <laughs> 